Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Roger Kneebone, who is an expert in becoming an expert. Dr. Kneebone, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me onto your show. Oh, the pleasure is mine. I'm excited to spend this time with you. I'm wondering, before we jump into your book and the work you've done, if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your own journey to becoming an expert. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that I would describe myself as an expert, but anyway, to the, to the extent that I've got to the point of being able to look at what that might mean, um, I've got a, a, a medical background. Uh, my first career after uh, after qualifying as a doctor after being at medical school was as a surgeon and and I trained as a um, a general and trauma surgeon. I'm I'm from the UK. I did my undergraduate uh, studying uh, in in the UK, but then after I'd been a hospital doctor for two or three years, I then went overseas to spend what was initially planned to be a year but turned out to be five years in southern Africa. Um, doing a lot of trauma surgery. So, um, so this is the kind of surgery where you're dealing with people who've been, who've been injured in one way or another. It might be um, injured in road, road accidents or falling out of buildings. But in my case, most of the patients were people who'd been, who'd been uh, injured through violence, mostly stab wounds, increasing number of, um, of gunshot wounds, and sometimes people had been blown up. Uh, and at the time, I was working in a very violent part of the world, which was Soweto on the outskirts of Johannesburg. Um, and so there and in, in Cape Town and latterly Namibia, I, I gained a, a lot of surgical experience, became a consultant and attending, as you would say, in North America, I think. But then uh, having done that, decided to change direction and in a rather uh, unconventional move, I suppose you'd say, uh, I, when I came back to this country, I retrained as, as a family doctor, as a GP, general practitioner. Um, and for the next almost 20 years was uh, a member of a seven doctor practice in a town about 100 miles from London in the southwest of England, a town called Trowbridge, uh, working in a, in, a, in a group practice, uh, which was a completely different kind of medical practice from looking after people with stab wounds and contract wounds in Soweto. Um, and then in a third career change, I um, then became an academic um, and joined a, a, a large university in central London, Imperial College London, um, research intensive university where I've been since. And there now I'm professor of surgical education and engagement science at Imperial. I'm not practicing clinically, um, not looking after patients, but I'm particularly interested in what it is to to teach and learn about surgery. And I run a master's program in surgical education. Um, I'm interested in, in simulation as a way of, of, uh, of making the practices of surgery and medicine more widely available to different people. And that's led to an increasing interest, which is really what I'm focusing on at the moment in what it means to perform and to be a craftsman in different areas of professional practice and medicine is the one that I know about from the inside, but I've been 
uh, and doing a lot of collaborative work with people from the performing arts, from, uh, from sport, from high pressure industries to try and understand what is going on when people come together to do things as a group that require high levels of, of dexterity and precision, but also the ability to make collaborative decisions under pressure, all that kind of thing. And I jointly lead a center for performance science between my own university and the Royal College of Music, which is a, uh, a leading musical conservatoire in England, uh, which is very close to, uh, to our university building. So that's kind of, um, kind of a, a, a whistle-stop tour of, of what I've done so far. And somehow amidst all of that experience, you managed to write a book about the, the development of expertise. And I think I remember either reading it or in my first conversation with you, you shared that this was sort of an inside out approach to expertise versus the traditional, you know, maybe 10,000 hours approach. I'm wondering if you could just unpack how you arrived at approaching the book this way, and then we'll jump in. Mm, well, I, I'd, I'd been interested for a long time in, 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 in what it means to become expert, not, not so much thinking about expertise as a disembodied quality that it, in the way that it's often written about, I think in the, in the sort of psychology literature and the scientific world, but thinking about what are, what, what are the human stories really that lie behind people who have become expert in different ways. And I'd spent a lot of time and still do talking to people um, who are very expert in, in areas that I, I know nothing about. Um, and, and as I say, it might be sportsmen, it might be, uh, it might be craftsmen of various craftspeople of various different kinds, you know, wood engravers or stone carvers or, um, or, or, or all kinds of different people, hairstylists, um, uh, and, and people who are in the performing arts on the, on the stage, uh, musicians, opera singers, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I began to, to see sort of areas of connection between the processes that they'd been through to get to where they to, to where they got to as as people I recognized as experts. And I started to wonder what that process really consisted of. And so I decided in the end when I wrote this book to to look at it from three points of view. One one was um, one was the stories of people who had become expert and trying to trace what had gone on in, in that experience. Um, alongside though that, I wanted to have access to a sort of inside story of what that felt like. And of course, the only, the only inside story I have access to is my own. And so, so alongside those, those, those stories of, of, of other people's experience, I've interwoven my, my or aspects of, I've drawn on my own experience in some of those areas I talked about before as a surgeon, as a GP, as, as somebody interested in, in crossing disciplinary boundaries. And then of course, you mentioned the 10,000 hours, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of research and a lot of a huge amount that other people have written. And so I, I drew on that as well. And, and in order to try and make sense of that and give people a, a kind of framework, I, I decided to use uh, a well-known model that, that, that people in Western cultures especially are familiar with, the, the, the medieval guild model, the apprentice journeyman master model. Um, and I should say that, of course, I'm not using those words in any gendered sense anymore, but they are words that are in the, that, that's sort of familiar to many people. 
the idea that you start off not knowing anything about it and doing what somebody else tells you, then you get to the point where you know enough to go out across to journey across your your your, your country, hence the name, and and plow your craft or trade and make a living out of it. And then finally, you know so much and have gained so much wisdom that you can support other people and set up a workshop of your own. That that model it it, it kind of makes it has a, it makes sense to a lot of people, but the problem I have with it is that it is essentially a description and not an explanation. And what I wanted to do was to come up with an explanation of what is the experience of going through those stages and, and how then might an under, a broader understanding of what lies ahead for anybody reading the book might help them in navigating um, a journey that I think we are all of us on in whatever it is that we want to be getting better at, whether it's our main profession or work or occupation, or whether it's a, an interest we've just taken up or whatever it might happen to be. But I think this process of becoming expert is a, is a, a, a sort of fundamentally human one. And I wanted to try and make sense of it. I think you did an excellent job making sense of it. I mean, it was fascinating seeing the different stories and threads you, you wove together. Um, and in my coming from it, from my background, you know, I thinking about the development of elite athletes um, who also deal with things like understanding where they are in their process or coaches, but then to see you talk about the experience of hair, hairdressers and hairstylists, um, people who are doing different kinds of crafts work. It just was a really, I think, well-rounded way of thinking about all the different ways people might arrive at feeling that sense of mastery over their domain. And I like the model that you chose. I'm wondering if we could just spend a few minutes kind of unpacking different pieces of this. And I'll start with where I first was like, oh, this is really, really interesting, was at the end of the apprentice model, you have this space and other people dynamic. I'm wondering if you could tell us more about what that is and how you uncovered that. Yeah, no, this was very interesting. My approach for the whole of the book really was to was to try and draw out common threads from these many, many different people. There are 20, I think 22, 23 of them in the book, but far more than that, that I'd spent, I've spent a lot of time with over the last 10 or 20 years, um, to try and draw out sort of common experiences that they share. And, and one of them that, 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 that applies particularly, I think, to this this apprentice stage, this, this stage of learning something to the point where you can then take it out and actually do it, um, involves, involves several, several elements that, that made sense to me from my own experience too. One of them I've called doing time, you know, that idea that you just have to spend a lot of time doing stuff that other people tell you to do, uh, whether you like it or not, and, and more often than not, you don't like it, but that's tough because you've got to do it. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a very interesting mismatch I think between how you perceive the value of that at the time and how you perceive the value of that later on because at the time it's just boring it's repetitive you, you really can't understand why somebody else couldn't do it instead or maybe a machine or somebody else uh, and why do you have to do it because it's really tedious but looking back on it you realize but only a lot later I think that you've been learning far more than you thought you were learning and one of the things that you and what you usually think you're learning is what your what you think your task is about, which uh, it might be in, in one of the examples I give, which is a, a, that of a bespoke tailor, um, is a, a, learning to make 
pocket flaps or, or any kind of repetitive task where you think it's about making pocket flaps on jackets. But actually, although it is about that, and that's something you need to know how to do if you're a tailor, um, in the process, you do it so many times because it's one of those tasks that just requires a huge amount of practice, even though it's easy to understand what the, what the aim is, it takes ages before you could actually do it. And by doing it many, many times, you, you, you internalize a sort of awareness of the, of the diversity of, uh, of kinds of work you're going to have to do, you know, the different kinds of textiles that you're working with, the different kinds of thread, what, what, what thread feels like on a particular needle when it's going through silk or tweed or velvet or whatever, what it feels like on hot days or cold days or damp days or dry, you, all that kind of stuff. You get a sort of awareness of the materials that you're working at that point of connection between you and your work. But it also, uh, and this again, you often don't recognize until afterwards, I think it gives you an understanding of your relationship with the environment that you're in, in a wider sense. So the fact that you have to, you have to establish and and control or command a, a workspace which is which is effective for you and safe for other people doesn't endanger them you've got to navigate the space between you and whoever's next to you at the um, uh, on, on the bench or the whatever it is that you're working at uh, and you have to um, you have to become part of a group and you have to you have to learn what it is to be with other people who may be competing with you for your boss's attention or maybe trying to you, you know there are all kinds of things that go on in 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 every area of work aren't there and i think that's what i meant by the space and other people is that is that what appears to be and 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 in one sense is a specific task actually carries within it the opportunity to become part of a community of practice and a way of doing things that stands you in good state stead later on because by having done those things again and again and again and worked with people without even realizing it again and again and again those things you take with you as you become more experienced but it's very easy to overlook those things when you're actually going through them because then what you're really aware of is how boring it all seems and how much you wish you could leapfrog that and be doing glamorous work um and and that's that's a really I think interesting part. The other interesting part that, that, that my colleague that Joshua the Taylor pointed out is that actually the reality is that there is always boring work, boring parts of your work, and you have to learn to cope with that. And, and you know, if you can't do that in the line of work you've chosen, you, you, you have a choice. Either you can go away and, and try and find something else that, 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 is, that interests you more, although probably the same thing will happen, or you can find something about that work that you have to do, however small, that you can make yourself find interesting. Yeah, I, I, um, I've long felt that the, the people who are able to reach the top of their profession are the people who fall in love with boredom a little bit. Things are repetitive, but that is in a lot of the development of skills, sort of like a necessary evil. But I do think this dynamic that you're pointing out, you know, there are so many things in here that I think are really neat. Like one is that people do feel like they should be further along or don't really appreciate the experience that they're having, that 
you know, what typically might feel like sort of a competition or jockeying with other people to sort of reach the next rung actually holds a lot of value in the potential to build community and learn from others. And, and listening to you talk about, you know, the stitching aspect and the different materials and condition reminds me a lot of, um, from a neuroscience perspective, the idea of statistical learning. Like you just have to do a bunch of varied reps to almost build a model of the different ways this could go and anticipate that then as you move forward so you can take on progressively more challenging tasks. Yeah, I think that's right. You have to sort of, you have to sort of build up an internal library, don't you? Of, of, of what, are the, what, are the, what are the variations of what you are doing. And I think that one of the, one of the difficulties people have is that when you, when you start off knowing nothing about something, it doesn't take you long to know a great deal more than nothing. And that can make you think that you know far more than you actually do. Uh, and then when you get to that stage after not so very long, when, when it all flattens off and it seems that you've just had beginner's luck and, it, you know, and, and, and the tedium kicks in, then that's the bit when you can be you 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 can be misled into thinking that you've slowed down when actually you haven't slowed down what you're then doing i think is is populating your head with these many different examples of something that in in the most straightforward case can obviously be can often be quite simple but when when you're trying to experience all the different variations that they could possibly be of that it's not nearly so simple and it just requires time and perseverance, and, and I mean, there's just, just no shortcut for that. And I think that that is one of the, um, it's one of the sort of preconditions for, well, maybe we'll talk later about how you judge whether somebody is, is expert or not, because it's not as simple as it sounds, I think. Um, but one of, the, one of the things you can reasonably confidently say is that somebody, if somebody hasn't spent a pretty long time doing it, they probably, not expert. Agora <laughs> isn't necessarily the case. You can spend a very long time doing something and still not be expert. But what you cannot do is not spend any time, much time at all, and become expert. So, so that stage, which I think is an internal stage, where you just have to dwell and spend time with your materials and your colleagues and yourself and your body and your frustrations, that's what's happening in that apprenticeship stage, I think. So talk to me about the transition then from apprenticeship to journeyman. How do you know when you're, when you're going through it? How do you know when it's changing? And, and what are the sort of the key differences between these two phases? I think this is a fascinating point, which I haven't heard many people talk about, which is why I spent quite a lot of time in the book thinking about that. So I think as, a, as an apprentice in a system, very often the system will tell you when the apprenticeship stage has finished, you know, after seven years as a cabinet maker or something in the, in the, in the 17th century or whatever you, you um, and in, in, in my case, you know, after six years at medical school, I, I passed my exams, I became a doctor. And I, and I wasn't, you, you know, at midnight that day, um, I changed from being a medical student to being a doctor. Um, but, that, but the systems who, who, who do that largely on the basis of elapsed time, that takes no account of the internal processes that people have gone through. And I think that there are two fascinating changes that, that begin when you enter that journeyman stage or that need to happen, should happen, 
but don't always and they don't always happen when you hope they would and and they're both about change changing your point of attentional focus and i've called them it's not about you and developing your voice um so just just briefly the it's not about you is an idea I, uh, that came to me from talking to close-up magicians who who say that you you know for them the apprentice stage very often is is practicing and practicing and practicing so they can do amazing things with coins and cards and make them disappear and all the rest of it and it's usually on their own in front of a mirror and it's usually from about the, the age of 12 to about the age of 20 you know they, they spend years and years and years doing these things and and one of them said to to me that he got to that stage where he was pretty proud of what he could do um and then an old wise magician took him on one side and said look all this is just it's just dexterity that's all it is uh and it doesn't really mean anything at all unless there is somebody else watching who for one instant even if it's just a fraction of a second believes that something completely impossible has just happened and so it's not about you and what you can do it's about them it's about your audience and I, it made me realize that you know for magicians it's their audience for doctors it's their patient um for sports coaches it will be their uh, the people they're coaching won't it for for other people it'll be their customers or their clients or their audience whatever it might be um and so you need to make that change which is often not a very easy change because that that transition is often marked by you having achieved something tangible and visible to the outside world often with the ceremony you've part you've, you've you've gained a degree you've got a qualification you've something has happened and and naturally you know you've worked very hard to do it you get it you're very proud and you want to show off and you think it's all about you but you have to realize that actually nobody really it, you, you know gives a tinker's curse usually about all those things you've done what they care is whether you can do the job whether you can entertain them or make them better if they're sick or you know score girls under pressure or whatever it is and 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 so there is that needing to step back from yourself as the central point and and place your attention on on whoever your work is for not about you but yet <laughs> the journeyman stage is that is the stage when when you move from being a, a sort of interchangeable cipher a houseman in my case a junior doctor or whatever it is to being somebody with a an, a unique personality and so you know years and years later um when i was a family doctor in a group of seven doctors people would come to me or my colleagues uh if they had a choice you know, obviously different difference in emergency but when they had a choice they would come to us because of the people we were not not because of the letters we had after our name because they didn't even know what those stood for most of the time um what they they came to what, what the choices that they made about which of us to, to come was was how we related to them as individuals um and that would often change according to what they felt the problem was or how they felt on the day but nonetheless it was a it was a human connection that lay at the center of that i think and so so it is about you in the sense that it is about you developing your originality your, your individuality and taking taking ownership of who you are and not just what you can do uh 
And I think the closest parallel there, or the most helpful one to me, was what the, the jazz musicians described as developing voice. You know, where, where after all those years of, of doing the preparatory stuff and the learning of the repertoire and the notes and being able to play anything in any key at any speed, all that stuff, it becomes clear that you can recognize a particular drummer or, or a piano player or a saxophonist or something because of the way they play the way they play on their own and the way they play with other people. And that's developing voice. And these two things, I think, happen at that journeyman stage. And they are often, they, they don't always sort of fit in exactly with, with one another. They can be out of sync. And they most certainly don't fit in with the institutional expectations of what will have happened after X number of years. That's um, and I think that's a very interesting process because it is an internal process which which you cannot see from the outside because people are very good at dissimulating and uh you, you know playing the part of people who are better than they are or hiding things or boosting things or whatever um so so i think you have to you have to lift up, lift up the bonnet and look carefully at what's underneath before you really get a sense of what is happening inside people and i don't know if that makes sense to you from your you know supporting sportsmen in various ways well it, it does both on a personal and a professional level I mean I'm, I'm sitting here nodding along as you're talking about this magical midnight moment where you graduate from you know in my case to become a psychologist and now all of a sudden you know I go from I can't even sign my own notes to like I can do whatever I want to do and I'm like are you, are you guys sure are you sure you want to just cut me loose and and sort of let me go and it, it brings up you know imposter syndrome and all these other dynamics that are are uncomfortable and I think you know it, it sort of to deviate from the book for a moment you know one thing that came to mind thinking about what you were sharing and, and thinking about the experience in sport both for players and coaches and it sounds like for people like you and I is once that sort of initial phase ends, whether it's your rookie contract or your time as an entry-level coach and you get promoted, whatever that sort of magical moment is, people also back away from you. And they sort of just assume that now you know how to do it because you've crossed some sort of mystical threshold. And I see it a lot um, and have seen it a lot with coaches in particular, where the responsibilities change drastically and yet we sort of expect them to just know how to do it. Um, but it does take time to figure out that it's about the players. It does take time to figure out how to develop your own voice. I'm wondering what role mentorship can play in all of that. And well, I think, I, I think mentorship is crucial and it comes on to the, to the final stage, the mastery stage. But, um, but, but I, you know, while you were talking, I was thinking that um, that this whole question of what happens when you go out there and it's one minute after midnight is, is really interesting because the systems that we're in, at least certainly in the world that, that I've been in a lot, which is the medical world, and, and it's, I think it's the same sort of story with many of the other experts, the, the craftsmen and, and performers I've talked about, is that, is that the system has different kinds of tolerance for things going wrong according to where you are in these parts of the system dictated by the organizational structure so as a as an apprentice everybody expects you to make mistakes they don't let you loose on on irreplaceable materials 
or to do dangerous things on patients without supervision, or presumably to take penalties in international matches when you don't even know how to do it. You know, all, 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 everybody knows you're going to make mistakes. And the system understands that and expects it and allows it, allows for it and kind of protects you uh, to, 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 to some extent at any rate from the most damaging effects on you and certainly on other people of those errors. If you then leapfrog over to the other end, um, anybody who's reached that stage of being sufficiently experienced to be to, to, to be what, what I call that sort of mastery phase has been through so much stuff and made so many mistakes and had to deal with them that, that they, they, they understand absolutely that error is um, it's inevitable. I mean, nobody wants it, but it's going to happen. And that's why when they design workshops for other people to, to be apprentices in, they make sure that those people are protected from the immediate effects of the error, of course. And they've been around for a long time and they've made lots of, lots of things have gone badly wrong and they've had to learn how to cope with it. The really scary part, I think, is the journeyman stage because there the world in general does not expect you to make mistakes and it is intolerant when you do. And particularly at the very early stages of these transitions, when you are very likely to make mistakes because you are a doctor or a postdoctoral psychologist or a member of the, the second team or whatever it is, the, the, the world out there expects you not to make cockups. But of course you do. And so when you do, um, it can come down really like a ton of bricks on your head, I think. And there can often be a mismatch between where people have got to in terms of the resilience that they need to develop to cope with error, which really only comes through making errors and, 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 and getting over it and, and internalizing it and all those things that, uh, that, that more experienced people know about. But if that happens too fiercely too early, I think it can have a devastating effect on people because the world's expectations are so out of sync with the reality of what it is to be setting off on your own. Do you, do you, do you think that makes sense in your world? I, I do. And I think, I mean, certainly as a psychologist, but definitely in sport, you know, I think we um, expect when we pay a player a certain amount of money that now they will be, you know, materially different, even though the only thing that's changed is signing their name on a dotted line. You know, it takes work to make those, those transitions and sports a place where it's hard to be patient because the market's really competitive. There are a bunch of dynamics at play that sort of push and pull you in different directions. But ultimately, you know, you can you can do a lot of work to make development happen, but you're not going to change that much from 1159 to 1201. And, and yet, as the expectations morph, it's just a really tough dynamic to manage. And then you you mentioned this sort of last phase, this mastery phase, and passing it on. And it seems like you know, on this side too, there's also a challenge, which is figuring out how much autonomy you give someone in the journeyman phase, how you help point out these different blind spots, what your role is as an expert coach. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the last phase and some of these challenges. Yeah, I think, I think the last phase is a very interesting one. I, I think, it, again, thinking about it since writing the book, um, I think that, that it's not about you, it's about them transition that I mentioned in the going from apprentice to journeyman. I think it happens again at the journeyman to master phase, actually. Only this time, the, the, the them, when it's not about you, it's about them. This time, the them is, is, is not your patient so much and, the, and the, or your audience or whatever. It's the people for whom you have a responsibility. 
as as a mentor or a coach or whatever uh, and so you are i think taking a sort of aerial view of somebody else's path with the perspective that you've got from where you are looking backwards that they haven't got from where they are looking forwards and that may be uh it may be specific tuition if you like about or, or or helping with with techniques or something i don't know it might be techniques on the sports field or or uh, or strategy it might be teaching people how to operate it might be teaching people how to play a musical instrument or, or 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 helping them with interpretation or something like that but i mean i give an example in my book of i've been having harpsichord lessons for many many years i'm not particularly good but i've been having um lessons with the same teacher which is unusual for for several decades um and and thinking about that um as a as an inexperienced player struggling with a piece of music let's say a piece of music by Bach or something like that um I'm focusing on details of of, of this bar or, you know can I play it without stumbling or playing wrong notes or, or whatever um Sophie my teacher sees different things she's not particularly interested in wrong notes she says she, wrong notes only concern her if they if they give a clue to some sort of underlying misunderstanding or problem with understanding the structure of the music, say. And so although sometimes she might need to be talking about, you know, use your, your, your fourth finger, not your third finger here, uh, or give a little bit of more of a break to that, there might be that. Or she might be looking more widely and recently she said to me, actually, one of the problems I've just noticed, Roger, is that you're sitting too close to the keyboard. You know, things that I just hadn't noticed. Uh, or she might be saying to herself, actually, maybe it isn't working with this piece of music, maybe we should try something else. Or maybe the time's come to, to play in a very small way in front of other people, because I think, you, need, you know, so she is, she's making different, she's seeing different things and, and exerting uh, influence in different ways because of having a different perspective. And I think that that, or, or she might, I mean, she hasn't done in my, my case, luckily so far, she might say, Roger, you know, actually, I don't think the harpsichord is the instrument for you, really. Um, and, and maybe you'd be better off doing something completely different. Um, and, and so, which, which is a, a fair point sometimes when people are beginning to play an unusual instrument that they haven't done before. And it might be that they're taking on a sport that, that doesn't suit them, for instance. And so there's something, I think, at that mastery stage about about having been through a lot of stuff and being able, having been through a process yourself that allows you to see how that process could map on and help the experience of other people who are going through a similar process, although may, may be a different instance of it. You might be a cricketer and they might be a footballer. You might be a musician and they might be a, a butterfly collector, who knows? But, um, you know, there are, <laughs> there, there are sort of, um, there are sort of general principles, I think, that apply to that stage of becoming a master where you have accumulated not only knowledge and skill, but also wisdom and the skills to apply it sensitively to somebody else in a way that helps them um, and, and, and really contributes to, to the sort of generosity and support of the field. So you've said a couple of things in here I want to make sure I, I get to. I'll start with one of the things that I, I noticed when I was reading the book, and it's coming up again now as I'm, I'm listening to you, is in sport, I've heard this from coaches at, at 
almost every level I've worked at, um, there sometimes can be frustration with having to be the expert. You know, people become head coaches that really just wanted to be offensive coordinators or defensive coordinators. Um, people are asked to do parts of this work in a new role that they never anticipated or really wanted anything to do with. And sometimes part of that role can be developing other people that they're not sure they really want to do. Um, you know, they really just want to be involved in the technical and tactical and strategic aspects of, of the game. I'm curious if you uncovered that with any of the experts you, you met with. And I think this happens in places other than sport too, like tech or sales, where you have people who just sort of keep advancing to a point where they're no longer actually happy with what they're doing. How have people managed that or, or what came about from your work on the book that we could learn from about how to deal with that experience more effectively? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very interesting one, Alex. I th I think that so sometimes people, well, w w one of the things I've noticed in talking to the people I mentioned in the, uh, that I've talked about in the in the book, especially when I talked about the idea that the book's about becoming expert, was that they would say, "Well, I don't know why you're talking to me because I'm not an expert," you know, uh, and so so people often underestimate the 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 things that they are doing and the value and the way that they're working when when quite plainly to me they were experts <laughs> but um people people i think often don't acknowledge elements of their own work that could be of value to other people so they say things like well i don't see what anybody else could learn from me after all you know um and, and actually that may not be the case and so sometimes i think it is a question of giving people or helping people gain the confidence to recognize that that what they can offer is of value in this way of supporting other people and not not only in doing the work themselves but in supporting other people on their journey if that makes sense um but on the other hand there are some people who just don't want to do that i mean you know they they just that that side of working with other people just is not what they what they what they are drawn to or they uh, maybe they're, they're the, the way they, they interact with people just doesn't make that um work in which case i think you know it's worth acknowledging that um because you you, you know i think people who, who do have that mentoring well they, they they do it is a powerful position and it it needs to be it needs to be it needs great judgment and 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 discretion and sensitivity to to fulfill its potential and it also has there is also a negative side to what it can do and I, I, th I think there's something about you, you, you know supporting people in in taking on that role when they don't feel confident that they have enough to offer when actually they, they do uh, but equally not forcing people into that role if actually they are better in a different role and so there's something about I think recognizing recognizing fit in, in, in people, and I suppose it goes to looking at teams, and it's not only teams on the sports field, it's, it, it's, it's many other teams in, in many other levels. And there's something about finding the right, the right place, the right way for people to, to realize their own potential. And that includes relating in, in the most effective way possible with other people. 
Do you think that, that makes sense? I do, yeah. I really like the idea of not forcing people into a function, finding the right fit. And I think then it's, you know, partly the organization's responsibility to help that person be in, in that position more often if this person has a skill set that we just believe is absolutely necessary mm-hmm. in a particular role. And so I, I think that's really well said. I'm going to double back to your previous comment. What is wisdom in the context of the work that you've done? I, I think I think wisdom goes beyond knowing what to do and how to do it but 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 making sensible judgments about when to do it and and i i mentioned in my book a, a sort of adage that that a very experienced surgeon said to me and i'm sure everyone's had this kind of experience but maybe in different words who and she said to me she was my consultant when i was working in uh Baragonath in soweto and and she said roger um, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of time learning how, 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 how to operate. And, 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 and that's absolutely important because a, a, surgeon, a surgeon must know how, how to operate. Um, and she said, uh, uh, but a, a good surgeon knows when to operate, but a really good surgeon knows when not to operate. And, and to me, that's wisdom, is making these human judgments about how and in what way to to apply or use the things that you've spent a lot of time uh, working on and, and, and having the judgment to recognize when sometimes you shouldn't do something just because you can and you'd like to, doesn't mean you should. Um, and I think that, that, that to me, that, that is a, a sort of, that's an example of wisdom, which is very hard to put into words. It's one of those things that's easier to recognize than it is to describe, I think. But, did a good job. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what it is, and 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 I think it 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 requires a lot of sort of experience, a lot of of flying out on your logbook before you can do that, because because you need to have experienced lots of different, um, you, you 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 know, lots of different uh, variations on the things you will have encountered. To, to be able to make these sensible all-round judgments about what is actually going on in a situation. And these situations are complex and they involve, you, 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 you know, trying to make judgments about other people and their strengths and their limitations and all the rest of it. And putting all that together um, under conditions of uncertainty re- requires a very high level, I think, of skill. And, and that is where the wisdom comes in because it has to be underpinned by that generosity I mentioned and that sense that your work is about somebody else or something else. It's not just about, it's not just about you yourself and what you want to do and, and meeting your wishes, but it's about having a bigger sense of commitment to something more than yourself. So you, you said wisdom is kind of hard to know it when you see it. You know it when you see it, but it's hard to put into words. And at the beginning, you mentioned expertise kind of being like that. It's hard to feel it, but other people see it. And so how do you know? How do you know when someone is an expert? What are I know that's a crucial question, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mentioned a little bit about how you can sometimes tell whether be yeah, because there is often a mismatch between people who tell you they're experts and people you 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 think are, um, and very often people who 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 believe they're expert, they believe they are expert, or describe themselves 
in those terms, I think you have to be a bit careful about those because most of the people I've talked to, uh, when this comes up, they say, well, uh, I, I wouldn't describe myself as expert. I mean, I, they, 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 they have this sort of tension that they are justly proud of what they do and the quality of their work, but they are more aware of how far they still have to go than how far they've come. And they, um, and so you, you cannot take people's estimation of themselves as face value, at face value. I think you can, you can safely say that if people, this is a long process, it takes years and years, decades, um, certainly years and years. So if somebody has just started something and they've been on a, uh, an, a, a course to become a financial advisor for two months, uh, and now they say they're an expert. I think you can pretty safely say that they're not. Um, the, the, the converse isn't always true. Um, and I think it's a very difficult judgment to make, but I think having an understanding of the complexities and the long drawn outness and the arduousness of the process gives you a sort of set of, um, it gives you a kind of, set of not exactly criteria but a, a, a set of landmarks with which you can judge other people's claims to be not exactly claims because they don't usually make those claims themselves but um, you know you can make judgments about whether you think somebody is expert and and also a lot of that is about how much how they come over to you as a as a person because I think that um, that a, a lot of these judgments about whether people are expert or not cannot be made by by objective metrics a lot of them are about uh, a, a, a personal a personal judgment that one person makes about another this has it's, been it's a bit of a woolly answer isn't it uh, but you know I, I, I unfortunately i haven't got a thing where you say you know you 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 do these seven things and if there are more than four of them are, are ticked that's an expert i don't think it works like that because i think it's very much a human thing and I think it's 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 not only about physical skill and things, but it's about it's about relationships and and trust and trustworthiness and a whole lot of things that uh, it, uh, fall into that category of being easier to recognize than to define. I I agree, and I think it's you know there's always a push, especially in in sport, but I think in business too, to just quantify everything and come up with some metric or way to figure out if someone's reached this, this mythical threshold of expertise. Um, and sometimes the loudest people get the most attention and we, you know, unknowingly convey expertise on them when they might not be. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that you're touching on these kind of like relational elements and these interpersonal skills and almost the, the feel or the experience someone has being with an expert as a hallmark of expertise, I think is really interesting. Um, and I think is noteworthy for people who are trying to get to that point that it's not just about being technically gifted or tactically gifted. It's also about being interpersonally gifted and having a sense of how you relate and connect with others and build trust and help people feel safe. And these other things that really convey not only a sense of technical skill, but a sense of like real mastery over your whole domain. Yeah, and I think I think just finally, I think that that to me the the one the most one of the most influential ideas that I came across or that came out from doing all this stuff with this book was the it's not about you idea that at every level 
you are, as you become further, as you go further along this pathway, it becomes less and less about you and more and more about whoever you, your, your work is for, whoever you, you are trying to support in doing what you believe is important, you know, all that kind of thing. And that is something that requires, um, it requires time to get away from that natural and inevitable and quite right too when it happens, focus on, on stuff that's absorbing all your attention when you're trying to do it yourself. But that gradual widening out that allows you to do things in a more, uh, in a less frenetic uh, and a, a, a more sort of aerated way that gives things time to unfold and happen uh, and, to, and to share that that sense with other people that that this is a that you're creating an environment in which that in which that is 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 able to 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 grow and to flourish i think that that comfort with ambiguity and allowing things time and space is is one of these hallmarks of of expertise and not being you know blown every which way the wind blows or overreacting or underreacting but knowing how to let things take their natural course. Um, Dr. Kneebone, this has been an incredible conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've learned even after reading your book, it's been cool to unpack some of this with you. Where can people follow along with you? Where can people learn more about your work and, and get a well, sense of what you're up to? Yeah, they, they can um, They can look, look at my website, which is www.rogerneebone.co.uk. So it's a new website. That's why I'm trying to. <laughs> so my name is Roger. Sure we get it right. yeah, we can, we can, maybe we can put it in the in 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 the chat or whatever. They can take and do that. Um, they can read my book, which was published in paperback by Penguin Books last year and hardback the year before. Um, I've written a whole lot of stuff in various uh, medical journals, lots of essays in the Lancet and the British Medical Journal, for example. And most particularly, I've got a, a podcast series of my own called Countercurrent. As you know, Alex, because you were very kindly one of my guests um, not so very long ago, and these are one hour or thereabouts conversations with, with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, they last about an hour, and I've done getting on for 175 of them now, so quite, quite a few. Um, and, and, and many of those are, are, are the experts in, in my book and, and many other experts beyond. Um, and that's called countercurrent, or one word. Um, and if you just put countercurrent and my surname Nibone into your search engine, you'll find it. Um, but there, there, there's there's lots of other stuff that that I've I've done, and also in those various places, links to to other things that you might like to read or might think about, or or contributions from other people. So so, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, anybody who's listening, um, then my my email is r.nibone at imperial.ac.uk. Thank you so much for joining us. I will make sure that all those links are in the show notes. It was a pleasure to have you and we'll see you soon. It's been a great pleasure to, uh, to take part in this conversation and thank you again for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfair.com adv.substack.com.